Okay, Edward Tide, it's a thing. You've probably never heard of it. I've never heard of it until I started working on a catechesis session for Edward the Confessor and Ethelberga of Barking. Polly is lucky that I didn't get into Ethelberga of Barking before she was born, because she would, definitely would have gone for that. I don't think Denise would have let it through, but that's a name that needs to be resurrected. All of the wonderful names that start with E, like Ethel and Eusted and Ethelberga, and we've got Edward the Confessor as well. And what we have in this is my attempt to continue to wrap up where we've been, to see where we're going. This is just a reference. Not, I know you can't read it, but it is a sense of where we've been as far as catechesis since Alan Jacobs, Dr. Alan Jacobs, left and handed the baton to us of our twin moniker, which is the two descriptors of this church, which are... High church and evangelical, right? Not Anglo-Catholic, high church. He, that is a specific decision. It's a, there's different signals that are sent by high church rather than Anglo-Catholic and evangelical in the sense of grace. And so we've toggled between the high church side here, side here where we've talked about the virtues, the heart in pilgrimage, reading from Martin Thornton, the idea of English spirituality did not start at the Reformation. No, it goes way, way back to Augustine, to Benedict, the two eggs and the omelet of Anglicanism. And on the other side here, we had Mike Strachan, Father Mike. A lot of you might not remember him. Fantastic guy, still serving as a priest. He focused on Galatians. When the 500th anniversary of the Reformation happened, we doubled down on that heritage. We didn't say, oh, what a bummer. We said, no, we believe in that. And so we emphasized grace, and then we went with a controversial figure. Paul's all, grace and practice. How do we bring the two of these together? We did that in 2018, 2019. We've done two runs through the church year, and we're in the second. In the Great Litany, we dared to celebrate Thomas Cranmer and Thomas More. Most people have to pick. And in this year, we've dared just last week to celebrate St. Francis, Francis of Assisi and William Tyndale. Most people have to pick. We get to do both because they are in the one body of Christ. And so that's a sense of where we've been. And let's begin with a word of prayer for these two mysterious saints that we're focusing on in this season, this catechesis session that we're also calling Seasons for souls, saints and their seasons. Let's open in prayer. Father, we need your grace. All you ask is our thanks for what you have done. Your arms are not crossed waiting for our accomplishments. Help us, Lord, to understand the truth of your grace in a fresh way today. Through Edward the Confessor, through Ethelberga of Barking, your servants, your saints, but also your sinners that are forgiven. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So Chadwick's wonderful illustrations that we're inspired by in this, this is October, two of the saints that show up. So St. Francis, of course, last week, 
And St. Edward, this is a wonderful Anglo-Catholic vision of what the church year means. And we honor it, we're excited about it, and we interrupt it with a figure that doesn't show up. William Tyndale, right? Think of that, that Reformation heritage, that grace under pressure that he experienced that we talked about last time. And so today is the Feast of Edward, and I'm throwing in Ethelberga as well, because conveniently enough, um, she is at the beginning of the Anglo-Saxon conversion period, and he is at the end. So this is the pressure cooker of what it means for all these barbarian races, of which some of you are descendants. I am a descendant of those barbarian races. And so that's why this session is called Grace for Barbarians, that is, all of us. And we're going to think about grace in regard to these two figures, and we're going to talk about race. Every time someone says, let's talk about race, sometimes people panic, or what's coming now? What's going on? Or, or we don't talk about it enough? Well, let's talk about it. I think instead of just throwing out the generic category of whiteness, we can say, well, let's talk about the history of whiteness, which does, in some senses, go back to that Anglo-Saxon period. And when we historicize that and understand it as a race with its own context that needed and continues to need grace like every other race will begin to, I think, maybe have some fresh perspective to attack and approach these controversial issues that our society is, seems to be freshly faced with today. Again, Edward Tide, not something that is thrown around. Who has heard the word before? I'm just curious. Okay, we've got one or two. We've got Hannah's bit. Okay, we are right, wonderful. I just never had, but it's a big deal. Right now, today, the translation of St. Edward the Confessor, when his body was taken to a new shrine at Westminster Abbey, it is a time of spiritual growth. Let it be that for you. Some of the guys are going on a camping trip, some of the All Souls men. Um, Join us, right? This is an opportunity for spiritual growth. This is a time, and this you don't think of that as October. Maybe it can be a Lent of sorts, of seeking God more closely. And then there's a national pilgrimage to the shrine of St. Edward the Confessor, which we'll look at in a moment, um, in Westminster Abbey itself, and you can make your way there. So this has left a real dent on the tradition of Anglicanism, but we want to approach it in a unique way this morning. In our medieval and Byzantine art class, we were reading St. John Chrysostom. The feasts of the martyrs are not simply days on the calendar, but events in the souls that celebrate them. Events in your soul and my soul. Can they be that way? I think there were some eruptions that happened in my soul as I heard about William Tyndale and St. Francis of Assisi. I think that can function that way. And what would be um, the eruption or event in your soul in regard to Edmund and Ethelberga? Well, I will tell it to you in case you have to slip out for the choir, um, in case you're wondering, you know, what, am I, what did I get from this history lesson? Well, it was more than a history lesson. What are you supposed to take away? I'll spoil the ending. I think this is the take home from the lives of these two incredible and yet really normal figures. Give us something, anything, but spare us the indignity of this indiscriminate acceptance. Lord, let your servants depart in the peace of their responsibility. If it's not too much to ask, send us to bed with some few shreds of self-respect to congratulate ourselves upon 
But if that's too hard, leave us at least the consolation of our self-loathing. <laughs> Robert Farrar came in between noon and three. That's the take home. The ego wants to be in control and grace pries our white knuckled hands from the steering wheel. And we'd rather hold on to it even if the trip isn't that enjoyable. And so we are sinful and loved, and the human heart resists that diagnosis. Righteous and loved, we can work with that. Sinful and hated, fully understood and especially applied to others. But to put sinful and loved together, your heart and my heart is tripwired to resist that diagnosis. And so sinful and loved. That's what the sermon was about today. You'll hear it soon. Sinful and loved. Again, that is the take home. You can leave now if you want. <laughs> Beware. Of ever, this is Luther to one of his former monastic companions. Talk about a heated exchange, right? What have you done? You've ruined the church, Martin. We used to be Augustinian friars together. Beware, George, George Spenline, who he's writing to, of ever aspiring to such purity that you do not want to seem to yourself or to be a sinner. For Christ dwells only in sinners. The Reformation, no, better, Paul, in a nutshell. Christ dwells only in sinners. And I can see George being rather angry when he receives this missive from Martin. This is offensive. I've made myself right with God. I'm approaching to God as a righteous person. No, Christ dwells only in sinners. And everyone gets nervous, as you should, because they got nervous at Paul when he said this too. We have a little asterisk there. We mean a repentant sinner longing for righteousness. Not in the sense of wanting to live a, an unrepentant life. That's what we mean by sinner. Someone who's seeking God, but knows that they come to God not with clean, but with dirty hands. And so this is the scandal of grace that has disrupted our nice little high church project here at All Souls. It's unfortunate. We could have been fantastic. We, we, we could have just been getting more and more righteous and more and more holy every day till people can barely set foot in this building because we're so righteous and holy. And there'll be miracles worked inside from our righteousness and holiness, but we're deciding to approach things in a different way. This is a club for sinners. That's the membership requirement. And sometimes we build up a little resume for ourselves. I build up several in different stages of my life. I have one, I, I burn it, and I say, oh, I love you, Lord, I need that. And then I build another one, and that's my buffer between me and God. <laughs> but no, he wants me to approach him as a sinner. That's the takeaway from both of their lives. Remember, this, this was from last year. We showed the justification schema from the Council of Trent, and this is an external audit from Daphne Hampson, a theologian, who says this is the Tridentine, that is, Catholic view of salvation. You move along, you accumulate merit. It's not on your own effort. This is not Pelagian, but the merit is infused in you so that you can do the work and you make your way more and more along the way. You gain righteousness. And we looked at that, we respect that and admire that. I would not call it an antichrist system. I would not go that far. But nevertheless, what we're arguing for here is something different. And this is the paradoxical nature of what it means to be both a sinner and a saint at the same time. This is your attempt and my attempt to justify ourselves before God. The theta in Greek is just theos, God. 
and you try to do it and you can't. And so what you do is you repent, which is not a work, it's a collapse. It's a breakdown. It's a surrender. It's a white flag of the ego. All right, I'm done. I'm done. Done here. And you are transferred in a paradoxical, mysterious way, again, into Christ. Your identity is in Christ. It is his righteousness imputed to you. A book that is given on loan from the library. It still belongs to Christ, but mysteriously, it's yours. It's not your possession that you can do with what you will. And that is that mystical sense of being in him. And works are not because we're trying to accumulate merit, but because, well, that's just what you do. (laughs) You just do it because, of course, you might as well ask a candle flame not to emit light. It's going to. It just will. And if you understand this, that you've been justified, you're going to work with refugees. You're just going to. Are you doing it because you're wanting people to look over your shoulder? Did you see that I worked with refugees? It's really wonderful. No, you're just doing it. It doesn't matter who sees it. You're doing it because it's right. And after we talked about this, Kelly walked up to me and she said, isn't this kind of sometimes this understanding of merit and isn't that kind of evangelicalism at its worst? And I, I was like, I, she said, I'm like, you're exactly right. It is. Unfortunately, places that claim to be evangelical in the sense of grace turn themselves into this, but under a presumed Protestant schema. And if that's what you're about, oh my goodness, what a horrible place to be, where you're just living the works righteousness schema under the banner of the Protestant Reformation. Why bother? What a horrible system. And unfortunately, a lot of people live in this system. John Henry Newman is being canonized as we speak, the great Anglican convert to Roman Catholicism. He will be Saint John Henry Newman probably now or at least in a couple hours from now. And he, I think, was reacting to this kind of evangelicalism where he was released from works, but then he was enslaved to his own feelings. And that's what turned it into, I have to have all these fuzzy feelings. It's the charismatic movement at its worst. On my way to justify myself before God. I'm glad he left it. And this is not a pot shot to our friend being canonized today. This is a statement from Roman Catholic scholars that Newman misunderstood Luther, didn't read German, didn't have any of the translations of Luther that we have today. He didn't understand this paradoxical sense, nor does Hans Urs von Balthasar. Why? Because they're not smart? No, they're leagues smarter than any of us, but because the human heart is tripwired to want to develop a resume. That's the Lutheran paradox. If you're offended by Luther, it's working, folks. Because <laughs> your vices and your virtues are to be discarded. And we're making that gamble. And a better way, a more beautiful way of seeing it is the law gospel panels of Lucas Chronic the Elder. I wish we had more time to explore them, but there's our deistic God out there. This is self-justification, right? And these are the law code either of the Old Testament or whatever our society says we need to do. And that is the preaching of righteousness and the super soaker of blood that splashes on his head or her head that says, this applies to you what he has done. That's imputation. So, law gospel, it's a gamble we're taking. 
<laughs> I think it's the only reason to stick with this project that is called evangelicalism that is under such pressure. It started as a politicized term. It meant the good news of Augustus Caesar coming to town. God help us if we let it become politicized again. It begins as a subversion of politics to become about the good news of Jesus, not some political empire. But whatever's happening to it today, let's go back to that gospel sense that this message unfurls. Sinner and saint at the same time. Double-moted with his grace, says George Herbert, who knew something about English spirituality. Catholics and Puritans on two sides, the double moat of grace is what makes this project worthwhile. And what does it have to do with these folks? Everything. Everything. Because this group of barbarians who are piling into the island that Rome has retreated from are anything but a group of saints ready to just get the, the top off message on what it means to be truly spiritual. No, they are rotten to the core. That's who they are. That's who's coming into this island. <laughs> and God is going to redeem them anyway. That's the beauty. <laughs> Original sin is such a scandalous thought, but it's on the heels of the great news that he's accomplished everything. So we hold on to it here. Yes, as we've seen, the gospel was already in England in the fourth century, we have the Hinton St. Mary mosaic that you can see that sweet face of Jesus surrounded by pomegranates. In our medieval and Byzantine class, we've been talking about how the whole history of early Christianity can be told by pomegranates and peacocks. What happens to the pomegranates and the peacocks? Symbols of luxury and decadence become symbols of resurrection hope for the lower classes of Roman society. And so there he is. So again, the gospel was there. It was flickering in England. And when Rome retreats, you have the Angles, the Jutes, and the Saxons. Who's like, all right, it's time to take them out. And they hop on their ships and the invasions begin. And what happens at this point on the Caelian Hill in Rome, we have a great pope. No exceptions to that. He truly is holding an falling, crumbling Roman Empire together. And he's on his monastery on this hill. There is his throne. You can still see it today. You have another view of it here in this beautiful ivory. Not a very fancy throne. The papacy begins as a place of liberation. It, of course, is going to be inflamed and aggrandized to the point of problem. That's what always happens with human power. But it starts with this and you may have seen it if you look up at Raphael's Stanza della Segnatura. That is the throne of Pope Gregory in that Eucharistic disputation down there, this incredible pope. And what he does is, I think, personally, and I've mentioned this to you before, that he understands the Pauline doctrine of grace. Because as Bede tells us, the great Anglo-Saxon historian, that he sees the Anglo slaves, slaves, slaves in the market and asks his companion, who are they? They're not Anglos, he says. They're angels. He imputes righteousness to them that they don't have. <laughs> 
Where are they from? They're from a place called Ira. No, they're not. They're from wrath. That is wrath in Latin. He, a brilliant scholar, is playing with the tools of scholarship to bring grace into my ancestors and some of yours. And we didn't deserve it. But someone understood the gospel. Where, who's their king? Alia. No, it's not. Their king will be singing praises to God. We always have to go back to that because that's the scandal of grace at the beginning of what it means to be Anglo-Saxon. In Paul Zoll's words, to regard somebody as a person he or she is not. So there's this exchange in the market of Rome. And Gregory says, there's something about these people. It's not that they have it. It's that God's going to give it to them. And so he gets back to his monastery and he says, uh, first person he sees, you, Augustine, come on, uh, go, go. You're going to go up to the, the place of the, the Anglos. I don't know, it's some island up there. You've got to preach the gospel to them. And okay, 596, Canterbury is the place where Augustine is sent. He's not happy about it. He actually gets to Gaul and he turns back because they said, you do not want to go to Britain. Do you realize the Anglos, the Jutes, and the Saxons are just, I mean, it is a free-for-all up there. It is martial law. It's walking dead. Don't go there. He turns back, and he gets there, and Gregory sees him. Oh, I'm so sorry. It must have been so hard for you. He says, what are you doing here? Get back there, you idiot. I told you to go. They need righteousness just like you do, Augustine. Go. And so he gets there, and it begins. St. Ethelbert of Kent is the first ruler, and you had to go to the rulers. Some of the books from this, oh, Peter Brown, The Rise of Western Christendom, he explains this so beautifully. St. Ethelbert receives the gospel, converts to Christianity, and you think, hey, we win. We have our Constantine in England. Everyone's going to be Christian from this point on. But then he has his son, Eadbald of Kent, 615 to 640, who like Julian the Apostate, the emperor after Constantine who goes back to paganism, he's not interested in what dad believes. I don't care about your faith, dad. It's not mine. So here's Ethelbert right outside of Canterbury. And I worked so hard on this. I hope you're happy with it. I found there was a, there was a band, a hard metal band called Backslider. So I borrowed their, the Philadelphia-based metal band. So there's Ed Bald. He says, and, and Ethelbert is very upset. No, my son, my son doesn't believe in the God that I have chosen. And so what are we going to do about this backsliding king? Well, what we're going to do is send another great missionary like Augustine of Canterbury. No, we're going to send Ethelberga of Barking instead. So here's what goes on. Ethelberga marries... Eadbald, and with, oh, I'm sorry, Ethelberga marries Edwin, the king of Northumbria, and now we're going to have a person who's interested in Christianity who has some royal authority in this land of England, but we're way north. I was thinking of uh, Narnia, higher up and further in, right? Well, mission to England, higher up and further in, okay? Way up north. And so Eadbald the pagan is down here, and she is given as a gift to Edwin, and maybe Ethelberga will be able to convert him. That's the hope, but that's not the way it works. <laughs> and so Paulinus of York gets an opportunity through her and her connection to this new guy, Edwin, to try to bring the gospel up in this area. And it goes on, this drama as to whether or not Edwin will convert for nine years, nine years with Ethelberga, a faithful Christian, 
speaking to her husband, praying for her husband, Monica style, right, with Augustine, hoping that he will come around. Why doesn't he come around? This is the question that people ask. Well, this is the Sutton Hoo ship burial discovered in 625, which is our, our time transport window into the culture of the pagan ancestry that we're talking about, the Anglos and the Saxons. And we have reason to believe that that's the reason that he did not convert. Because this is Redwald's, according to some historians, his actual helmet was found at the Sutton Hoo burial. And Redwald doesn't look like a very friendly person. <laughs> and Redwald is at odds with this king, and he's the king of the East Anglia area. And so he's just, if I give up, if I turn to Christ, am I, where am I going to be? And Redwald, it's really interesting, he actually had an temple that had one place where you would sacrifice to Christ and another place where he would offer victims to devils. <laughs> so this was a, a um, halfway house between paganism and Christianity. Redwall doesn't really want to go all the way, and so it doesn't sound like um, this gentleman wants to go all the way either. So Edwin is not quite sure. He's in the court of Redwall trying to make a connection, an alliance, and here's so interesting. In the Sutton Hoo burial, the only indicator of Christianity amidst this wonderful anamorphic, these shapes, is silver spoons that say Peter and Paul on them. Ever so, so the Christianity is just beginning. It hasn't infiltrated yet. This is how it goes down. Paulinus is going to conspire with Ethelberga, and in 616, Edwin is outside of Redwald's castle, and he's been exiled there, and who knows, he might get killed. And so he's brooding, and so Paulinus approaches him, not letting him know who he is. And he says to this brooding Edwin, a certain man would persuade you to deliver you from your troubles and get you on board with Redwald. And later, that certain person will give you life and salvation. Imagine this mysterious encounter at midnight. You don't see who the guy is, okay? Would you submit to such a man? Paulinus in disguise says to Edwin, and Edwin says, I would do that because I'm desperate. I'm at the end of my rope here. And so then, here's the sign. Paulinus lays hands on his head and says, wait for that sign to come again. And then he disappears into the night. And later, when things just start to turn around, Edwin's saying, I'm thinking, I'm gonna, my life should back together. I'm going to turn to this Christian God. And Paulinus comes up and says, has this ever happened to you? And Edwin's like, all right, all right. I think I'm into this Christian God. So that happens in 616. And then in 628, not just because of Paulinus, because of Ethelberga's constant ministering to him, he converts. And this is the context, folks, of the great story, maybe the second greatest story in all of Bede's history. I love it so much. I've shared it before. But we have to understand that when a king converts, there are going to be parties thrown everywhere. And during the parties, okay, someone explain. Give, give me the arguments again. Give me the, what were the arguments. Why do we like this so much? And I'd like you to look for a moment at that sparrow right there. Okay? Take a look at those sparrows. One guy gets up. I wanted to do this in an accent, and Denise said, you only have one accent anyway. Just use your generic accent, right? Your, your English, Scottish, Australian accent. But I'm not going to, but I'll just read it. The present life, O king, seems to me, in imagine raising a goblet, okay? The fire is roaring. Seems to me in comparison with that time which is unknown to us, 
like to the swift flight of a sparrow through the room where you sit at supper in winter and your officers and ministers with a good fire in the midst while rain and snow prevail outside. And then, if this faith of yours can tell us more about what's outside the walls of the universe, then that sparrow who goes from cold to warmth to cold, then we'll go with it. You're giving us metaphysical hope that we had never dared guess about before because the Norse gods and goddesses could not help us. You're telling us that that sparrow that comes in and finds warmth and goes out, you're telling us that it's not just the church, but the whole cosmos now is hospitable, which was not hospitable before Christianity came to them. You are worth more than many sparrows. The idea that you would be cared about as that brief sparrow that comes in out of the storms and goes out again during the time in this life is new news to them. In fact, it's the only news you can imagine. It's the first new piece of information that's introduced into the world since its inception. So like all the tribes and nations of the world that have converted, they converted, and there at one of the Celtic temple sites, computer reconstruction of it here, they have mass baptisms and preaching for 36 days. And Paulinus makes his way to not new, but of course, old York. And we have to remember that this starts as a mission outpost to these barbarians, many of the descendants of whom live in this city today. Old York is a mission field, as is New York. And that is how it begins. Had an amazing presentation from a faculty member in the English department, who did, Ben Weber, who did such a great job of explaining what it was like to be in York and to be realized that out there on the heath are the heathen who don't believe in Christ and we're going to minister to them. So it's Ethelberga and Paulinus together that accomplished this. And of course, it's no different here in the Great Lakes. In the stories that are told, the true stories about missions to the Native Americans in this area, the same point is made, Paths of Kateri's Kin by Christopher Vexy, that eventually the Jesuits were failing. They were not succeeding in ministering to these Native Americans. But Christian marriages would alter the nature of Indian society, making the bond stable to educate the young and serve as the key to true and lasting conversion. So there's unnamed people like Ethelberga that succeeded in Christian missions amongst the natives of the Great Lakes area as well. So who was this woman? We don't know as much about her as we would want, but she knew, we know she did quiet service behind the scenes. She's a wife, and eventually, you'll see why, she becomes an abbess, but we could also say she is a failure. Why is she a failure? Because when Edwin, her husband, dies, the entire mission collapses. And they go back to the pagan faith. And so she starts a monastery here. Her life is known to have been such that a person, any person who knew her would question that the kingdom was open to her when she departed into this world. There are stories about her death, but here is what's left of it, and that is there's archaeological projects of Ethelberga's monastery that's there in Kent to this day. So that attempt doesn't succeed. There are no visible fruits for it in the long run. So I'm not sure she could count as a success. She ministers quietly, and then the great heathen army comes along. 
A couple of raids is one thing, but look at that. In 865, there, I mean, it's one thing to have four ships that ransack Lindisfarne, but it is quite another to have a Viking army taking over this land the same way the Anglos, the Jutes, and the Saxons tried to do it. And this is a nuclear warhead is a way to think about it. When you saw these ships coming, you were not delighted, you were not excited about their appearance you saw people that were coming to kill you. More of these bloodthirsty Norsemen are coming into town and they're not interested in the Christian gospel. And so to give you a sense of it, this is the Frank's casket from Northumbria in 700. And just zoom in on this. It's such a strange image, but it's our window into Anglo-Saxon life. What you have here is a a nice, um, not exactly fit for Sunday morning story. You have King Neohad captures Wayland the smith and orders him hamstrung, and that is, we never use that term literally, but in this case it is literal, slicing his hamstrings. So he can't do anything so that this smith will have to make jewelry for him. So that's what happens with Wayland. And then Wayland kills the sons of the king who came um, to get some jewelry from him. So now he's going to plot some revenge. You can see the dead son down there. Okay, and then he makes goblets from their skulls, jewels from their eyes, and brooches from their teeth. So the king that kidnapped Wayland is wearing the body parts of his sons. That is sweet revenge. Rambo, last blood style. Okay, and then the daughter is getting these, oh, thanks for these new jewelries made from my siblings, but she doesn't know that. And then what happens is the daughter comes along, he gets her drunk with one of the skull goblets with a drugged beer. He has her way with her. It's kind of brutal, not kind of, it's deliberately brutal. And then he sires a son with the daughter and announces his triumph by plucking feathers from these birds and gets away. So that's how barbaric, how offensive, this is a rape story. It's horrible. And on the other side is the gospel. Paired with that story, this is how barbaric these people are. Paired with that story is a reversal, an overcoming of all of that bloodthirsty pagan nonsense. And what you've got, if you put it together, you can see the three magi and and Christ, one of my favorite Virgin Marys in all of art history. Bad rule and good rule. The cup of vengeance and the cup of mercy. The virgin birth replacing this horrible, condemnable act. And maybe we could even put that together and say, no, look at the birds. See, here you murder the birds and kill them. And here, the bird humbles himself before the true order of ecology, Christ becoming a member of this universe. If I told you that about some other tribe out there, you would be, oh, that's disgusting. Native Americans, did. it's about my ancestors who did it. Yes, it is disgusting, but the gospel means something for them too. <laughs> Thank goodness. They received this message. There's much more we could say about the Frank's casket. There are many scenes, but my simple point, can we see this is our world of retribution, right? You do this to me, I'm going to do this more to you. Vengeance. Sure, it's law. They did that to Wayland the Smith. He deserves what he's going to get. 
And that might be one way of thinking about it, but the only hope, the only answer is justice that comes from what Christ has done and not from we attempt to secure ourselves. Here in this land, in the Mississippian world before European contact, <laughs> same thing, right? You've got a Mississippian gorget from Tennessee with a man who has removed the head of his enemy, not a tribe that you would want to be connected with unless you were in touch with those who were in power. And it's no different. <laughs> we are partners in crime and partners in hope. Here's Norval Morisot's Ojibwe native image of Jesus. Same exact reality. Imputation for those tribes no less than for our own. That's the pagan stew that is cooking up in Anglo-Saxon England, that is subverting these ideas which cannot save you and cannot help you. You do not want to deal with these divinities. The Viking Empire grows stronger over these several hundred years, and what happens to the terrorist vessels is this. <laughs> they become used to illustrate the mystery of the gospel. That's a take from the book of Kells. That's conversion of true sinners into the possibility of salvation because of what Christ has done. They build stav churches from, from the word for the cross. And what's so funny is that hardcore metal bands um, say we want to burn down those churches. But what would happen is if they burn down those churches, they would burn down all that's left that's good about Viking culture because Christianity absorbed it. I know it's your favorite too. I think this is Cradle of Filth, Christian Ivan Espinal, about my age, wants to declare war on this Christian culture, go back to something different. He doesn't know what he asks for. He might be one of the sacrificial victims in the society that he wants to return to. Newt the Great comes along and gives some degree of political stability and he is a Christian, so we have some hopes and possibilities there. And then Ethelred the Unready, how do you think he did? Not too well. <laughs> and his son is Edward the Confessor. Doesn't die a martyr, so he's called the Confessor. Born about a thousand years ago. We have kinship with him as far as the numbers work out of time since Christ has been here. He's exiled to Normandy probably the legitimate successor, he has these wilderness years. His hagiographers say that that's when he cultivated the virtues of holiness. We're not quite sure. He was urged to invade. He waited for the invitation. And when the time comes, he's crowned. And he wants to go on pilgrimage to Rome, as Knut did. But he instead doesn't have that opportunity. He says, how about this? I'll build, uh, you know, there's Eastminster. Everyone loves it. How about I build Westminster? And so... In the 1040s, he establishes his royal palace here next to a Benedictine monastery, and that is what it becomes today. No one's seen this. That, of course, burned down. St. Paul's replaced it. But the two east and west sides, Minster just means the monastery. And over time, hagiography, that is the, the holy writing about these figures, emerges. They say that um, Edward saw Christ in the Eucharist. I love those stories to remind us that he's really present in the bread and wine. Or Edward once told one of his enemies, one of his unforgivable enemies, that because you tortured my brother, uh, you will choke and die. 
And he says that just as that person laughs at him, puts food in his mouth and chokes and dies. So, and this is my favorite story of Edward, is that he sees a beggar, he gives him a ring, and the beggar says thanks, and then later some pilgrims are in Jerusalem where Edward always wanted to go, and some person walks up to him and says, hey, um, could you get, this is hundreds of years later, could you give this ring back to Edward? I want to thank him for it. And by the way, I'm the Apostle John. <laughs> and then he disappears. And so that's the great ring. So that's why he, he shows up that way with the ring. So those are the stories we tell about Edward. But what did he do to deserve sainthood as in the sense of heroic sanctity? Well, he's the patron saint of difficult marriages. And we call him that <laughs> because he cast his wife into a nunnery. And the hagiographers say it was because he was so saintly that he didn't want to have sex. <laughs> and we might say, well, maybe it's just a really difficult marriage, right? <laughs> so we know that about him. We airbrush his history. He, according to some, mismanages the succession crisis, which what happens the year that he dies? 1066, Norman invasion. Maybe he too can be considered a failure. The best long book about Edward the Confessor says he made no great impression on his contemporaries. He's generally been regarded with mistrust, but still says, but he's resourceful. He's wise. And that's his simple tomb. And it reminds me of that simple wood. That's not marble. That simple wood on the altar. That simple wood of the cross. He, too, is a sinner. Give us something, anything, but spare us the indignity of that moniker, <laughs> a sinner that needs grace. And so what do we do? Let me walk you through it. 1066, he dies. Okay, this is all you ever could see of his monastery that he founded. Okay, not many people see it. It's in the crypt and it's in the pyx chamber in the cloisters. It's very simple. It's Spartan. That's what he constructed. But we're not satisfied with that because we need continuity between the Anglo-Saxon period and the Norman conquest. So we're going to lionize Edward and say he was perfect in every way. And there's the throne that the invader is enthroned upon, William the Conqueror. And he wants to be near this guy. A hundred years after... In 1161, he is declared saintly as a confessor. They find witnesses and evidence here and there to say, oh, clearly this guy was an extraordinary ruler. He's canonized in 1161, and they build this for him. <laughs> Can we think about that as accretions over our egos that don't want to understand ourselves as sinners? <sighs> I'm, not saying, I'm not saying that there aren't good things in Aelred of Revo's wonderful life of Edward the Confessor, there are. But the truth is that France was really cooking up a new building style, and Henry III was not going to let that happen on his watch without rivaling him, so that's why Westminster looks like it does today. It's a, it's a uh, retort to Saint-Chapelle. We go from this to what we see today. Clothing, masking, the reality... Edward's tomb is at the heart, right here, of Westminster. There it is with people celebrating Mass in front of it. There it is with its hood on special occasions. And there it is looking up. But what's underneath all this? In that little spot, it seems to be something of a convertible, is just that. <laughs> and here is just that. 
I think this is one of my favorite illustrations of Christian quote-unquote progress, right? Performing on this side and pretending on this side. And the gap grows between your performance and your need to pretend as you eliminate the need for the cross. And the way one person beautifully put it, right? Guilt, fear, shame, and insecurity because you know you're just pretending. Moralism, legalism, and pride because of the need to perform. And the cross gets smaller and smaller. And the person who put this inspired chart together said, that's the way it's supposed to look. You always need the theology of the cross in Luther's terms. And I think that's why we've got a cross right up there. It always reminds you of the simple wooden truth of my status and yours. Humble sinners declared <laughs> accepted, declared loved over and over again. This is beautiful. I'm not saying it's not. It's stunning. I love it in every way. I hope you do as well. That's an astonishing piece of architecture, but that is at the core of it. And you are, are astonishing people. Maybe I am too, right? <laughs> but let's remember, come on, are we really? Are we really? It's no different at St. Peter's. It's great. I love it too. But what's below it, we now know, Bernini's beautiful Baldacchino is nothing but a humble fisherman's tomb. <laughs> a fisherman who was also a failure. We all know from the pages of the New Testament itself. That's the truth of Anglicanism. And the thing, and the truth of Catholicism. <laughs> they believe in grace as well, thank goodness. And the thing I will conclude with as we move toward the end is here, the most famous depiction of Edward the Confessor at the National Gallery, the Wilton diptych made in about 1400 to look back on this heroic king. And I think it says it as beautifully as it could possibly be said because that's Edward that's Richard who wants his blessing there's John the Baptist there's a martyr king Edward the martyr and there he's holding that good thing that he did and it's wonderful and I love it but what's Mary holding you know that's really nice Edward but I'm more impressed with this foot that was wounded for you <laughs> I think that's the law gospel truth right there. Beautifully communicated in the Middle Ages. Last thing I'll say is this is some of the um, places where these manuscripts are kept, where Edward's life is illuminated, where I got these from. And in one of those manuscripts, we might have the first, what we understand to be the first image of a black person in England. And when we look at that, we have to say, the same truth is for every race as it was for Anglo-Saxons who somehow along the way forgot their racial status as sinners, constantly in need of grace and mercy. That imputing truth of being sinful and loved is there for them as well. We packed in a lot today. I hope that's helpful. I'm afraid we have to pack up. There's some books here if you want to gander at them. I think we'll, we'll stop for the day. Thank you very much.